first time playing one of them. He's played one two or three times before. Well, good to see you. Thank you for the privilege to come. Appreciate the special music. Thank you, guys. Appreciate the piano there. Just a blessing to be here. Thank God for his grace and salvation. How about you? I'm going to try to preach off this table. If I knock it off in there, somebody come get it up, all right? Well, to answer the question, what's the difference between my preaching and his preaching? His preaching is solid, doctrinal, very biblical. And mine's just kind of like redneck mountain hogwash. Huh? Is that right? Yeah, he said, that's what he said. He agreed with me. Oh, well, that's just cause you don't know no better. You think all mountain people act like this, but they don't. Some of them actually got some sense. Um, we're going to be in Luke's gospel tonight. Luke's gospel, the 10th chapter, verse number 25. Luke chapter number 10. Verse number 25. I wish I had time to preach all the way down through verse number 37, but I won't do that to you. Just going to kind of give you the lead in to the parable of the Good Samaritan and talk to you about an encounter Jesus has with a lawyer, a scribe, and show you how that went. Went pretty good for the Lord, but not for the scribe. Yeah. You should never try to have a battle of wits with Jesus and come with no ammunition. That's the secret. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. The Bible says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice how he frames this question. What shall I do? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? How do you read it? And the answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do... And thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? If I were to go around this room tonight, and we took one of these microphones, and went around this building, and we were to ask everybody to answer one simple question, and the question is this. How can a person prove that he or she is a true believer in Jesus Christ? We would probably hear several different types of answers. I hope not here, but it's possible. Some might say, well, a Christian is someone who has been baptized. Hmm. Some might say, well, a Christian is someone who is a church member. I used to believe that, by the way. Some might say, well, a Christian is someone who is, you know, religious, or maybe there's someone who has morals. 
Oh, I know. Somebody would say, well, a Christian is somebody who's from the South. The Mason-Dixon line, that's a cutoff. You get above that, there ain't no way you know God. And if you get west of the Mississippi, it's just this kind of little section right here. You know, Jesus was from the South. Well, some would say a Christian is someone who is born in America and who voted for Trump. We could ask a hundred different people what it means to be a child of God, and we might obtain 100 different answers to that question. And I've often thought about taking a recording device and a microphone and just going to the mall and saying, how does a person become a Christian? I'd just like to find out the responses, not challenge anything they said, just let them speak and record the comments. And I may do that one of these days when I retire. When you stop and think about it, it doesn't really matter how I answer that question. And it doesn't really matter how you answer that question. In the final analysis, all that really matters is how God answers that question. And so what is God's answer to the question? How does God say a person proves whether they are saved or not? And he answers, I believe, that question in this text. And I want to walk through the verses we've read tonight and talk to you about the mark of true salvation. And as we explore the divisions in this passage, whether we like it or not, they will reveal to us, I believe, whether we are truly His or whether we are are not His. So I want to point out those quick divisions. I promise I won't be more than an hour or two. But if you'll notice with me, beginning in verse 25, I want you to see first, there's a trap. There is a trap. It says in verse 25, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus has been spending time with his disciples. They've just returned from a wonderful missionary experience. They've seen souls saved, lives changed, the gospel's been preached, demons have been cast out. They're rejoicing. Jesus is rejoicing. Everybody's rejoicing. But there's this lawyer, this scribe. This is not a guy who tries cases in a court of law. He doesn't handle real estate issues. He he doesn't handle divorces. He doesn't register deeds. He was a man who was a lawyer, a scribe in the Word of God. He was trained in the law. And his job was to be an interpreter of the law of God to the people of Israel. And his teaching carried great authority in that country. I mean, he spent his life studying the Old Testament in order to understand it and explain it to others. In some ways, he would be like a Bible teacher or perhaps a seminary professor. Now, the Gospels, if you've read them, and I hope you have, they are especially hard on these so-called experts in the law. Because these men believed they and they alone were the only experts as to what God had to say. They believed they had, they alone had the only key which could unlock the truths of the Word of God. And while they might have known the letter of the law explicitly, they were ignorant of the true spiritual meaning in the law. So this man was sitting there listening to Jesus, 
And at some point, the Bible says, he stood up. Now, standing up in the midst of a congregation, if someone were to stand up in here and begin to speak to me, that is an assertive gesture. That is you taking the spotlight off the speaker and focusing it upon yourself. Because you believe you have something to say which is more important than what is being said. This old boy has a question. And he stands up and he takes the attention away from Jesus. And he says his purpose here was to tempt the Lord. That means to put to the test or to stop him. He's looking for a way to trap Jesus. To get him caught in some kind of a snare. He had an ulterior motive. And I think his motive primarily was to embarrass the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this man interrupts the Lord's teaching to ask a question. Teaching The question is very simple. Master or teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this man already knew what he thought was the answer to his question. He did not need Jesus to answer him. But he wanted Jesus to give him an answer which was contrary to what the law said. And that's why the Lord's response to him is right on point. Well, what does the law say? How do you read that? Jesus just turned the table on him. This guy thought he would get Jesus to say something which would get him into trouble and it would give him and the other Jewish leaders a reason to destroy Jesus by proclaiming him a false prophet and perhaps by being able to call for his death. So there's a trap. The problem with this trap is Jesus knows what's happening. So is it really a trap if the one you're trying to trap knows what you're doing? What the man was doing was he's like Haman who's about to be hanged on the gallows he built for Mordecai. He's going to be hoisted by his own petard. He's about to get in trouble. And he doesn't realize he has walked himself into a trap. So there's a trap. But notice also, verse 26. I want you to see there also is a test. Now Jesus turns the question back, right? He gives this man a little test. He said, what is written in the law? When you read the law, what do you see there? And so put on the spot by Jesus... This man gives the correct answer. He really does. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And what he's doing here is quoting the Shema, which comes from partially from Deuteronomy 6 and from Leviticus chapter 19. And this was something every devout Jew prayed every day. They prayed this prayer every day. Jesus knew it. The man knew it. Every Jew in the crowd knew it. They all knew it. Right? And so basically Jesus said, if you want to do something to earn eternal life, then go do what you just said. That was the Lord's response. In verse 28, what did he say to him? He said, thou hast answered right, do this, this do, and you'll live. He said, you know what to do. Now get out there and do it. But don't be confused about this. Jesus is not teaching salvation by works. We're going to come back to that. 
But Jesus says, if you know so much about this, and you know what to do, then basically, why aren't you doing it? But Jesus did not take the time to point out all the major flaws in the man's theology, which I guess the basic one is neither he nor anyone else can do those things perfectly. No man can love God with his whole being all the time perfectly. And no person can love his neighbor as himself perfectly all the time either. The only man who ever did that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we know, Jesus did not have what we have, which is a sin nature. He's the only one who ever loved God with his whole being. He is the only one who ever loved his neighbor as himself. But this lawyer is looking for a salvation based upon what he can produce. He wants something he can do. Now, in all fairness, he's been raised in a works-based religious system. He's been taught that you got to keep the law and you got to pay the tithe and you got to do all these sacrifices. And if you do these things, then you will somehow find favor with God. But we know that is not the real spiritual heart of the law. The heart of the law is not about what you do. It's about in whom resides your faith. It's about believing in God. And then from believing in God, loving Him enough to serve Him and obey Him as the fruit or the expression of your love for Him. It's amazing. This proves the truth of what Jesus said back in verse number 21. Jesus has been talking about his laborers there, and they've come back, and they're rejoicing because the devils are subject to them. He said, don't worry about that. He said, rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Then in verse 21, Jesus rejoiced in spirit. Look what he said. He said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent. Read the scribes right there. And hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Here's this man who should have known what it meant to know God and love God and have faith in God. And yet he's still hung up on what he can do to earn his own salvation. And what this man missed and what so many people still miss today is that trying to please God and earn salvation through good works is an absolute impossibility. And it is an utter waste of time. We humans are so flawed by sin that Isaiah says even our best efforts, all of our righteousnesses, are as filthy rags. We're like the psalmist said, there is none that doeth good. No, not one. We talk about folks and we say, well, he's a good guy or she's a good person. When you get right down to it, none of us are good. I'm not good, you're not good. Your children aren't good, your grandkids aren't good. Nobody's good in the eyes of God. We're all wretched sinners, we're birthed in iniquity, and every one of us deserves to be in hell. Ain't no good old boys. I don't care if they do live east of the Mississippi and south of the Mason-Dixon. Because we've all gone aside. 
Every one of us has turned to our own way. We're guilty in the eyes of God. But if this man, like so many others, believed he could earn his salvation by doing good things, he was deceiving himself. As Paul said, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And I'll promise you this. If I got to heaven on my own merit, Brother Ricky, I'd get up there and say, Hey, man, let me tell y'all how I got here. I mean, I preached this message, and I saw this person say, And I gave this amount of money, and I did this, and I did that. Uh-uh. When we get to heaven, it's not going to be about you and me. It's going to be about the Lord Jesus who took our place on Calvary and died that we might have salvation and eternal life. But I'll let you in on another secret right now. Right now, it's not about you and me. Oh, man. And that's one of our problems because we think it is. Don't worry, I'll dig into that in a minute. But salvation is never earned by our ability to do good. It's given to us through faith in Jesus, through belief in the gospel, the fact that Christ died for our sins and rose again the third day. That is the gospel. And if you will believe the gospel by faith, God will save you. Paul said in Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, Thou shalt be saved. And no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter your background, no matter how low you have sunk, God will not turn you away if you come to Him by faith. Jesus said it this way, All the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast What does God require of us in that moment? A sincere admission that we are sinners. Acknowledgement of what God did for us through Christ on the cross. And simple faith in His finished work. That suffices. And even then, it's not us doing anything, but it's God working in us to accomplish His purpose of salvation through the Holy Spirit. I had absolutely nothing to do with me being saved. It was all God. He conceived it. He paid for it. He came after me and he birthed me to his family. I was just there for the, for the ride. That's it. And I like it that way. I've got nothing to boast in. So when Jesus, in this case, the lawyer quote, quotes these words to Christ. In Matthew, Jesus tells them to a different lawyer. But in both cases, they are the same. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. That's the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He said, on these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. What does that mean? It means all of the things in the Bible, the Old Testament, which says, God says you shall or you shall not. Every one of them is fulfilled by loving God supremely and loving others supremely. That's how you fulfill the law. It is based in love. 
So it seems to me we're zeroing in on the answer to our question. How can someone prove that they are a child of God? Well, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But if you're taking notes, it's real simple. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, it's a pretty good sign the Holy Ghost has done something in you. It is not a condition of salvation, but it is evidence of a changed life. Because when a sinner is converted... They are given the capacity to love God with their heart, soul, and mind. And they are enabled to love other people to the same degree they love themselves. The first element of the fruit of the Spirit is said to be love, right? And Romans 5, 5 tells us that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. By the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Shed abroad. It literally refers to an ocean of love. It's poured into our heart. There is no limit to the love of God for His people. And for God's people, there is no limit to our ability to love Him and others through the power of the Holy Spirit. The proof you are a child of God is if you love the Lord and others. Now we're going to talk about that. Because we need to talk about it. Jesus said this in John 13, 35. He said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples... If you build a nice church beside the highway and put on the sign, Sharon Baptist Church meets here. Is that what it says? No. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. If you give a lot of money to missions. Well, how about if you fill the offering plate up on Sunday? How about if you break the highest attendance record in Sunday school? How about if you carry the right kind of Bible and wear the right kind of clothes and part part your your hair the right way? No. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. One for another? Yeah, he's talking to those 11 disciples who were left because Judas had already gone off to do his thing. And Jesus looked around about those guys and he said, everybody who meets you and comes under the orbit of your influence is going to know you are mine because there is a supernatural love which connects you together. Ain't that weird? Well, That's what Jesus taught him. Now, let's get down to the nitty-gritty here. Verse 29. Notice the tactic. But he, willing to justify himself. You know what that means, right? 
That means to declare right. He doesn't know he stepped in it. And he has tracked it all over the house. And so he's trying to salvage something here. I mean, I've done been made a fool and it stinks. I done stunk this place up. What am I going to do? I, I got to be made right. So he says, he says, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus told him. What follows that beginning in verse 30 is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that story? Jewish man gets beaten up, robbed, wounded, left for dead. A priest comes by, sees him, and says, Uh-uh, buddy. I ain't helping that guy. Here comes the Levite, the choir director. He comes down the road and he says, He walks over and looks at him. Uh-uh. He goes on home. But here comes the hero of the story, riding his donkey, and he is a Samaritan. And when Jesus said the word Samaritan, every Jewish ear in the place perked up because they hated Samaritans. About like y'all hate Georgia fans. Huh? Especially after this year. We all just stop and have a moment of silence. But the Samaritan shows up. What does he do? He comes to where the guy is. He gets off the donkey. He wraps the guy's wounds up. He puts in oil and wine as, a, as medicine. He puts him on his own donkey, takes him down to a hotel, books him a room, and he tells the innkeeper, listen, you take care of him. I've got some business. I'll be back. And whatever the costs are, I'll pay it. Wow. The Jews are thinking, why'd you go make him the hero of the story? Well, I'll tell you why. Because he was the one who showed love. Not the religious people. And I'm sad to say it's much that way in our world today. You see, this scribe in our text, he may have been an expert in the law, but he knew nothing about God. Nor did he know anything about the way God saves sinners. And this man hears the words of Jesus, but the words of Jesus are not enough to satisfy him. And so he's trying to find a way to clean up the mess he's made. And by asking who is my neighbor, he was making excuses for his lack of love for those whom he did not esteem to be worthy of his love. Hang on. It's about to get real. You see, he had no problem loving his fellow Jews. He had no problem loving those Jews who were law-abiding and of a good character. But surely, surely, God does not expect him to be responsible for loving everybody. Does he? I mean, sure, that's a little too much, ain't it? I mean, he could love people who were like him. But he couldn't love people who weren't like him. So he's what he's doing. He's wanting to know where I draw draw the line. I mean, he's saying, throw me a bone here, Jesus, where I draw the line. You're telling me i got to love my neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? 
Is that Roman invader who is oppressing me, my neighbor? Is that wicked sinner who lives down the road and is an abomination in the eyes of God? Is that my neighbor? What about that blasphemer, that one who takes God's name in vain? What about that Gentile? Or what about that, God forbid, Samaritan? Jesus, come on now. Tell me who i got to love. Well, the question itself was reasonable enough, right? But it does unmask fully the condition of this man's heart. If you've got to ask who you got to love, you don't know the God who is love. He found out here he wasn't as wise or as learned as he thought himself to be. He wasn't as holy as he perceived himself to be. He certainly wasn't on the same page with Jesus. In fact, he wasn't even in the same book. He had deep spiritual problems. But is it not true, my friends, whom I do not know? I read on. Is it not true that his problem is a problem shared by so many in the modern church? Huh? Oh, we have no problem loving white Baptist people from the South who are like us. But we do have a problem loving people who are not like us. Do we have to love people who are of a different ethnic background? Do we have to love the blacks or the Hispanics or the Asians or them other people? We don't know who they are or what they are. Do we love our, have to love our wicked neighbor? Do we have to love people who hate us What about them aggravating Jehovah's Witnesses who get you up at 8 o'clock in the morning on Saturday? you got to love them. What about them Mormon dudes with their name tags, black ties and white shirts riding their little bicycles around? What about the Roman Catholics or the Pentecostals or the Free Will Baptists? we got to love them. Do we have to love the wicked people who govern us? Well... Well, surely, we don't have to love murderers and rapists and thieves and pedophiles and homosexuals and drunkards and drug addicts. And them people with the weird purple spiky hair, we got to love them. Must we love our fellow believers who get on our nerves all the time? Just who is my neighbor? Jesus, help me out here. Well, the answer to every one of those questions is yes. You gotta love them all. You gotta love them all. We are to love everyone, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they come from, regardless of what they look like, or regardless of what they may have done to us. And this is a challenge to us because we know 
We know right here in this respectable congregation, we know that we do not love others as we should. Now, y'all still with me? Our lack of love for those who are different, that's where it comes down to, right? That really is what it comes down to. You let somebody come in here who looks like you, and you're fine with it. But you let somebody come in who don't look like you, and you may not say it out loud, but you're cutting the eyes at them. You whisper. You say, preacher, we don't do that around here. Yeah, lions a sin too. But this is a challenge to us because we know we don't love, love others like we love ourselves. And it indicates we have a serious spiritual issue. Because if we really love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, we would have no problem loving other people. And our lack of love for God exposes two major spiritual problems in our lives. And here they are. When we do not love God supremely, it becomes impossible for us to love others like we should. And when we do not love others as we should, it stands as clear in in controversial, I can't even say the word, irrefutable evidence of our lack of love for God. If I love Him as I should, I'll have no problem loving you. No matter what you are. What you've done. How you act. And if I can't love you, it says i got a problem loving Him. You say, now preacher, I love God. Do you really? Let's talk about that. I'm a circle in the field. I'm going to get there in a little bit. But I still got a little gas in the tank. Hang on. I may be an old man, but I ain't done yet. Jesse, I'm about to quote that thing I sent you the other day. Our lack of love for God manifests itself in many ways. Let me just touch a couple, okay? It's revealed in how we treat prayer. We pray when we have time. But we don't mark out the time to spend alone with God. And I'm just of the, of the opinion that if you love somebody, you like to spend time with them. I don't want to get in y'all's business. At home. Ain't none of my affair what y'all do at home. But if you're married and you got a spouse, and you say you love them, would that mean that you would like to spend time with them? Just doing nothing. Just hanging out. And if you can't stand to be around them, kind of says to me you don't love them. Because if you love them, you want to be there, right? Same with God. Is that not true? It's revealed in how we treat the Word of God. We don't read it. We don't live it. We don't share it with other people. We take the message out of context all the time and try to make it say things it does not say. It shows up in how we treat the church. 
I ain't fussing on you because you're here, but them other people, they need to hear this. You go tell them I said it. I mean, a lot of of folk aren't faithful. Only show up when it's convenient or when it fits into their schedules. We allow a whole variety of unimportant garbage to come before God's house and worship. And we teach our children to do this too. And we say stuff to them like, now we go to church when we can, honey. But something else comes up, which is really important, and we want to do it more. Well, God understands. No, he doesn't. That's a lie. You've lied to your kids. But your kids, they'll learn that lesson. You try to teach them to keep, to keep their finger out of their nose. They're going to pay you no attention. I don't care. You've got to outgrow that, and it takes 40, 50 years. I just turned 60, and I just broke the habit last week. Amen. They ain't going to get that lesson. Don't pick your food up with your fingers. My wife says that every day to me. They don't learn a lot of those lessons. But you teach them that God is secondary to the stuff you want to do. They're going to learn that lesson. And when they grow up and don't want to go to church, don't go run to your preacher or run to some friend and say, why in the world don't they want to go to church? You told them. That's why. Just go to the mirror and look and you'll see the problem right there. It's revealed in our sin. We don't live holy lives. We let sin inhabit our lives. We treat sin with a casual attitude. We act as if the things we do uh, really don't matter. We act as if everything we do is right, even when a casual reading of the Word of God will tell you otherwise. Our lack of love for God is revealed in the, the casual manner in which we treat God. Ladies and gentlemen, most people who claim to be Christians, they don't fear God. They don't reverence God. They don't honor His will for their lives. They treat Him like, like He's just one of the guys. Talk about the man upstairs. Treat God like He's our buddy. Oh no, He is holy, sovereign, almighty God. And when we say God is the man upstairs, that is blasphemy. Because God ain't a man. And God ain't upstairs. He's on the throne. And you live on his footstool. You are the dust of his feet. Like it or not. It's revealed in our spiritual integrity. I'm, I'm heading somewhere. Hang on. I'm just getting warmed up here. I heard of what Kitchens did last night. Come in and got y'all all, all tore up and happy. Somebody got to get you back down to size. But our spiritual integrity is lacking because we lie when it suits us. We make promises we don't intend to keep. We live for ourselves and do as we please without realizing what our actions say about what we believe about our God. I know it's hard to hear. But our lack of love manifests itself in our lives. But can I point this out? I done lost half of you. I won't be here tomorrow. I'm sorry. You might want to take that second love offering up the night. 
I'm thinking about y'all getting the blessings, all I'm thinking about. Ain't got nothing to do with me. But our lack of love for God, it ultimately manifests itself in a lack of love for others. How do we do that? And I'm going to hurry here because I really want to get done. I don't want to preach forever like... Our lack of love for... Listen, pay attention here. Really, this is true. This is serious. I'm, I'm going to be this is serious right here. It's revealed in the way we talk about other people. We gossip. We spread rumors. We talk about them in unflattering ways. We say harsh words behind their backs. And we complain about what they do or they don't do. Or we're cowards and we use our keyboard to attack on social media. That's not love. It's revealed in our unforgiving spirits. Man, you may not be able to hold much, but you can hold a grudge tenaciously. We refuse to lay aside our differences. When the Bible clearly tells us, Jesus said in Luke 17, verses 1 through 5, He said, if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. Now there's your problem. See, somebody offends you, what do you do? You internalize it. You close it up in there, let it fester, let it rot, let it kill you. Jesus plainly said, if it ever happens, you go to them and you address it man to man, woman to woman. Talk to them about it. But see, you're going to walk around with that scab and that hurt and that pain And that problem in your life. And that person you're so mad at and so upset with. They may not even know what they did to you. And they're over here singing. Oh happy day. Oh happy day. You're over here thinking. My bless God. If I got a chance I'd get even with him or her. They don't even know what they've done to you. You need to go talk to them. And if you can't do that, you need to do what Elsa said, honey, and just let it go. Let it go. Paul said we ought to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You see, when we hold on to grudges, you know what we do? We detonate bombs. Under the foundation of our churches, our families, and our communities. We have the potential to destroy everything good. Because we got our feelings hurt. Well, preacher, you don't know what they did. I don't care what they did. We harness ourselves with perceived insults which hinder unity within the body of Christ. And in the end, we hurt ourselves. Because they're still over there singing, oh, happy day. And you mad as the devil. It's revealed in our self-centeredness. Am I right? Everything becomes about me and mine when I don't love other people like I should. We don't seem to care about what's best for the whole church. As long as our needs are met... 
or as long as we get our own way. It's not about us getting our way. It's about God having His way. When are we going to learn that? It's revealed in our attitude toward people. I mean, my goodness, somebody walks in the church and they don't, look like, they don't look like us or how we think somebody should look and we're happy when they leave and hope they don't ever come back again. It's revealed in our judgmental attitude. We look at people, we judge not only what we see, but we judge the motive behind what we see. We say, now, they did this, but here's why they did this. This is what they're thinking. Well, Holy Spirit, do enlighten the rest of us. Help us to have the insight you have. You don't know anybody's heart. Last time I read Jeremiah 17, you don't even know your own heart real well. Right? You ain't got a right to sit back and look at somebody else and say, I'll tell you why they did that. You don't know. And our lack of love is revealed in our pettiness and our immaturity. Somebody didn't shake our hand. Can I tell you, I'm trying to quit, I promise, I really. I'm about to the conclusion, aren't you glad? Had a guy, Jesse, remember if I named the name, he was a young man, he'll remember. Had this guy in my church, got mad at me. Hardly ever happens. I mean, really, there's probably not been more than 10,000 people been mad at me in the last 40 years. Probably. Maybe. 20. But this guy got mad at me. And he quit coming to church. Problem is, I didn't know he was mad at me. So I went to see him one night. I went to his house, knocked on his door, went in and sat down with him and his wife. And I said, hey, man, I've been missing you at church. He said, I ain't coming back. I said, okay, why? He said, because you hurt my feelings. Well, what did I do? He said, every time you preach, you point your finger right at me. (laughs) And he said, you point your finger at me, and then you call out what I've been doing. I said, listen, man, I don't know what you've been doing. I was pointing my finger to everybody. We all in the same mess together. I said, you just told me, though, that you's up to some stuff you shouldn't be up to. You ought to get that right with God, get that settled, and get back in church. And he did. But that's being a baby. We puff up, and we get the mully grubs, and we quit going to church, and we get all down in the mouth, and we stop giving, and we act like a child. divisive, it's ungodly, and it's not a manifestation of love. It's not what God's children do. How's that for plain? Well, I could say a whole lot more. When Jesus followed this episode up with the parable of the Good Samaritan and said what he did down there, He revealed to the Jews that this Samaritan 
whom they deemed worthy of the fires of hell, whom they would have said is beyond salvation. They would have said a Samaritan cannot be redeemed. Jesus said he knew more about the love of God than people like you. Talking about the scribe. You may know a lot about it. I don't know. But don't you think that we would be better Christians, that we would be a better church, that we would be better family members and co-workers and friends if we would take the Word of God to heart. If we would realize that the overwhelming characteristic of a child of God is that they love God supremely and they love others like they love themselves. And I know you. Well, I don't know you, but I know you. Because I are one of you. We love ourselves, don't we? Oh, yes, we do. You say, now, preacher, we don't think highly of ourselves. Don't, don't even try. When you get tired, you rest. When you get sleepy, you go to bed. When you get hungry, you eat. When you get thirsty, you get something to drink. You with me? And you look in the mirror, and you men shave your face. That's the sissy among you. Y'all shave your face. Some of us shave our head. And you look in the mirror, and you say, Looking good, tiger. Because we like ourselves. You ladies put on that dress and get that makeup just right and fix that hair. And you look in the mirror and you say, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Got it going on today. We all think we're something. But Jesus said, you better love your neighbor as much as you love you. Do we do that? Do we? Nah. What does that say about us? Well, it says there's a need for repentance. It says there is a need for confession. It says there is a need for us to say to God, God, we are wrong. Please forgive us and help us to honor you through the way we love you. Because the way we love you will determine how we love everyone else. So I think the key is to fall in love with God. I think that's the answer, don't you? Father, take our feeble words and use them for your glory. You know this church. I don't know anything about them, really, other than I like them. But I know you love them. And Lord, I pray you would help them today. Speak to every heart. If there are changes which need to be made in us, Help us to make them for the glory of God. And help us that we would confess our lack of love for you. And our lack of love for others. Help us to get it right today. We'll thank you for it in your name. And amen. Together today while they play softly for us. 
a lawyer comes to Jesus, what do I have to do to have eternal life? Jesus says, you know the law. The man knows the law. He thinks he loves the law. And so Jesus gives him the law. And Jesus proceeds to crush him with the law. He does. What do you have to do to live forever and enjoy the blessings of God? Just love God perfectly and love other people perfectly, even when they don't deserve it. Crushed him under the law. And then he gives him a story about a good Samaritan. A foreigner who loved somebody enough that even when his wounds weren't his problem, he made them his responsibility. Yes. You say, who, who loves people like that? Who looks at all the needs and all the brokenness in the world and says, it's not my problem, but I'll make it my responsibility. Nobody loves people like that. There is one who loved like that. There is one who looked at us in the ditch of our sin and said, it's not my problem, but I'll make it my responsibility. And he healed us, carried us, fixed us, repaired us. That's how Jesus loved us. John says that we love because he first loved us. That everything we know about loving one another comes from how we have been loved. And if we put all of these barriers and restrictions on our love for other people, the way he just talked about, if we hold these grudges, if we sit and stew and let those wounds fester, rot, turn our souls gangrenous, if we do that, it's because we really don't understand how he's loved us. We don't understand that we were the broken victim of sin laying in the ditch. And Jesus passed by and got in the ditch with us. Saved us from our mess. So that we could be transformed by His love. To love Him and love others. That's how much He loves us. Now the question that comes home to us is. Do you really love God with all your heart, soul, and mind? No, you don't. Because you're a sinner. But there has been a man that did that too. The same Jesus who made your problems his responsibility. That man did love God perfectly with everything he was. And that man did love his neighbor so that you could. Now, you carrying those grudges? That's the stuff Jesus came to save you from. Carrying anger and resentment, that's the stuff. Those are the wounds that Jesus cures love for the Lord grown cold, Jesus wants to change that. So maybe today you've seen how Jesus and the Word of God connects our love for one another to our love for God and our understanding of God's love for us. Maybe God has brought to mind specific people and specific relationships. While they sing, you need to come and bring those things to God and say, Lord, they're yours. They're not mine anymore. I don't want to carry them. Lord, I want to make it right. You've heard the message. Now as they sing a couple of verses of an invitation, if you need to come, or if you need to go to somebody in this building, that'd be even better. Make it right.